The Sermon on the Mount um, is, as we've pointed out many times before, Jesus teaching on what life in his kingdom looks like. It is his description of how those who follow him will think, act, and live. And the best summary that we have come across in explaining what it is, is that, that summary in that one paragraph that we have read, I think, probably every single week um, from Jochum Jeremiah, what Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of the disciples, and it is not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here are symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world, which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. So, so the, the Sermon on the Mount and the things that we're looking at are really, um, you know, get, getting to the heart of the matter and really showing us that to follow Jesus is first, first of all, it is a matter of the heart. So I've, I've entitled the message today, Holistic Transformation, because we're talking, this, this is really, this is what Jesus is talking about. He's, he's, he's pushing back against this external uh, religious observation and going through the motions and the rituals. But the people, the leaders especially, their, their hearts were far from God. Jesus said, he, he quoted Isaiah to them at one point. He said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so this sermon is really getting to the heart of the matter, and it's speaking about this holistic transformation, transformation that goes deep to the core of our lives and then works itself out from there. So uh, here in this section that we are in, and um, over the past four weeks, we're looking at the section where Jesus is, basically he's correcting the misinterpretation of their scriptures, which we would commonly refer to as the Old Testament. He's correcting the, the wrong interpretation that has been taught by the religious leaders of the day. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. And so as we look at this particular portion today, we are there uh, once again. The second thing that Jesus is doing is he is reaffirming and in some cases reframing the truth of God's word for all generations. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus here is, is not simply in this particular portion, he's not simply reaffirming, he's actually reframing. 
And that's because of the distorted teaching of the religious leaders on this, this subject of swearing and taking oaths. And so you, hear, you see here something really interesting. You see Jesus as the legislator. You see Jesus as the lawgiver. And he is now changing something. So he alone could do that because, of course, he is the Lord. But it's pretty interesting that that's what he's doing here. He is, he is um, reframing things, and this is the reason. He's reframing things to get back to the heart of what those laws were really all about. Because that it had been lost in the false interpretation of the leaders. So he's getting back to, to what what were these, these um, <clears throat> commands about swearing and oaths and all of that? You know, what was at the root of those things? That's what he's getting back to. Honesty and integrity among God's people, that was really at the root. And Jesus is going to bring that out. So he says in verse 33 again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago do not break your oath but fulfill to the lord the vows you have made now this is not a quotation of any one law of moses but rather a summary of several old testament precepts which require people who make vows to keep them. So Jesus just, he just summarizes what was said in a number of, of different places in the law of Moses. And so here are a few examples. In Exodus, we read in um, the 20th chapter, actually the the, in, the, in the Ten Commandments, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That is, uh, taking the name of the Lord, swearing by the name of the Lord, or taking an oath in the name of the Lord is the idea there. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely, says the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2, when a man vows to the Lord, he shall not break his word. So that was, and there, there's a couple of more that are very similar, but that was the, the teaching of Moses. That's what came down from Moses. Now, the rabbis would do this quite frequently. They would invent clever ways of breaking vows without incurring guilt. The, the rabbis were the master of the loophole. <laughs> Truly, they were always looking for the loophole. This is what God said, um, but you know, maybe, maybe he, he really meant this. Here's an example. If you take a vow, this is, this is kind of a summary of what they would do. If you take a vow and use the name of the Lord, it's binding. 
If you didn't swear in the Lord's name, then you were free to break your promise. So, I mean, it's almost like what most of us probably did in our childhood when we would swear to our friend or somebody that, you know, such and such was the case. And then when they discovered that it it really wasn't the case, we'd say, oh, well, I had my fingers crossed behind my back anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Or I didn't swear by this, I only swore by that. This is what these guys were doing. But the tragedy is that these are full-grown men. And not only are they full-grown men, but they are supposed to be the, the spiritual leaders of the nation. But this is the type of thing we're doing. Jesus himself gives the best example of this type of thing in the 23rd chapter of this Gospel of Matthew. Listen to what he said. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, they are bound by the oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And everyone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. So Jesus is uh, taking away all of their ability to find the loophole and to manipulate. Because, again, what they would say is, well, I, I didn't swear by God. But Jesus says, well, if you swore by the earth, you swore by God's footstool. If you swore by heaven, you swore by his throne. So he's, he's not giving them any way out of this. So with this as the background, it's easy to see why Jesus says in relation to his people for the future, do not swear an oath at all. He just says, we're going to just, we're going to nix those oaths. And we're going to get down to the real core of what is going on. Now, a couple of quick side notes, because this, this question has been asked many, many times about swearing or taking oaths. Um, well, if, you know, since the Bible says this, like what, what happens if I get called for jury duty and, you know, then I, I, I like have to testify and I have to take an oath? Well, listen, that, this has nothing to do with that at all. But... There have been those who have mistakenly thought that uh, throughout the long history of the church. They have thought that uh, you couldn't take an oath in court or uh, you couldn't swear upon entrance into some type of service. The Anabaptists back in the time of the Reformation and uh, the Quakers who came not much later on in history but are still with us today, the Friends Church. Um, 
they mistakenly thought that this was what was being said or, or it applied in that way. And to this very day, serious Quakers still refuse to take oaths or to swear in a courtroom. So just so you know, in case your conscience is ever bothering you when you have to maybe do this, Jesus isn't talking about anything like that. So it, it's just, you know, probably going back to the, the Anabaptist who, the Anabaptists were uh, a group of people in the, the Refor Reformation who just, they took everything just absolutely literally. And they didn't take into consideration the background or the context often. So, so this is why they would have come up with that type of an interpretation, but no application in that area. As we see the context, we understand, okay, this is, this is what Jesus is referring to, specifically these types of things. Second thing, when Martin Lloyd-Jones the great 20th century British preacher, when he preached a series on the Sermon on the Mount in the 1950s, which became a classic book on this topic. I think most um, pastors have that book in their library. But when he was teaching the series on the Sermon on the Mount, he imagined someone asking the question, why when the world is in the state that it's in, should we be talking about such things as vows and oaths and whether we should take them or not? After all, they might say, this seems a bit trivial in comparison to all the problems in the world. His answer was essentially this. According to the New Testament, everything a Christian does is important because of who we are and of our effect on others. One of the ways people become Christians is by observing Christians. We are all being watched and therefore everything we do is of tremendous importance. And then he said this, perhaps one of the most potent means of evangelism at present is whether we are people of integrity, people whose word can be trusted. Now, the reason why I'm sharing this is because I think there is a parallel at the present moment. There are Christians today who would ask, why are we teaching through the Sermon on the Mount and talking about not taking oaths with all the evil that is going on in the world. They would say, you should be preaching in times. You should be preaching the, the judgment of God against all the wicked people who are destroying our country. You should be educating people on the woke agenda and working to get people that are going to support our traditional values into office. Listen, this is huge right now in our Christian culture. 
So much so that some Christian leaders are even looking at some of the statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and saying, you know, those, that's too weak. You know, Jesus is saying things like, turn the other cheek. We can't afford to turn the other cheek. Because if we do, we're going to be buried by the left. And so I, over and over again, I hear uh, you know, pub, Christian public figures, pastors, saying, you know, the church has to rise up. The church, it, the, unless the church does something, the country is going to hell. Well, what, what, is, what are they wanting us to do? That's the question that I have. You see, the reality is those efforts that I just mentioned here, that people would insist that this is what you should be doing instead of talking about this, you know, love your enemy stuff, those efforts will inevitably fail to produce the level of change needed so they shouldn't be given the level of priority that they are given by so many in this moment. The reality is these things will ultimately fail. And so to take that and make that the priority and to think of something like what we're talking about today, which, which really what we're talking about is getting into the, the deep things of our hearts where change must take place first. See, that, that's, that's the important thing. Formation of Jesus' character in our lives, listen, will never fail to bring forth the fruit of righteousness that glorifies God. And that's what matters first and foremost. And that's really what we need more than anything today. That's what we need. We need people that are transformed, people who are honest in a dishonest culture people with integrity in a culture of corruption will be the ones in the end to make the real difference. That's the truth. A German theologian who lived through Hitler's reign of terror said that during the time, listen, listen to what he said. He said the avoidance of one small fib could be a stronger confession of faith than a whole Christian philosophy championed in lengthy, forceful discussion. Wow. I believe that we are living at a time, especially here in the West, where merely talking about the faith without living it will no longer fly. It will no longer be tolerated. People don't want to hear us preach things we are not living. They don't. And probably, more so than any time I can remember, the need is for really living our faith as well as proclaiming it. We always have to proclaim. We always have to preach. There's no time where you just say, well, I'm not going to, uh, you know, we don't have to preach or say anything. We just, you know, we just try to live good lives and that's going to be the thing. There's some, somebody somewhere came up with a saying one time they attributed to St. Francis that, that um, 
he, he supposedly said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, Francis never said that. He wasn't that daft when it comes to what the gospel is. You can't preach the gospel without using words, but you need to preach the gospel with a life that supports what the gospel says. So people just don't want to hear they should follow Jesus from people who don't really seek to live the way Jesus lived. I've shared this quote before, but it, it just is so relevant. Again, Leslie Newbigin, he asked the question, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross, I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Who believe it and live by it. And quite honestly, for decades, perhaps, even, maybe, maybe long maybe even a longer period of time, the, the, the environment in the culture has allowed for a telling but not living. But we've come to a place in the culture where that's not tolerated any longer. People want to see the reality of Jesus in our lives. And the wonderful reality is when they see Jesus in our lives and they hear what we are saying, that's when people connect. That's when they say, oh, wow, this, this is real stuff. This isn't just religion. This isn't just external. So what is Jesus's point? Jesus's point is this, that we are to be people that are true through and through. People that are true. People, uh, people that your word is your word. Nobody even has to think twice about whether or not you're going to be faithful. Nobody needs you to swear on a stack of Bibles. Because they know, man, this, this, this person is a person of integrity. Jesus-formed people can be nothing less. Peter says this, Christ left you an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin and listen, and no deceit was found in his mouth. No deceit was found in the mouth of Jesus. You could absolutely count on Jesus to be always truthful, always speaking the truth. And Peter reminds us Christ left you an example. Now, I, I hate to say it, but I, I have to, that I do think that the church has been riddled with the same kinds of um, 
issues that Jesus is addressing here with the religious leaders of the day. People not being people of integrity, people not being people of their word, people making promises that they never intended to keep and then looking for a loophole. Even sometimes saying, yeah, well, I know I told you I'd do that, but then I prayed about it and the Lord told me, don't worry about it. <laughs> no, he didn't. You know, there's a, a proverb, I think it's a proverb. It says, blessed is the person who swears to their own hurt and does not recant. So even if you made a promise and later on you're thinking, oh, dang, why did I make that promise? I don't really have time to do that. Or, gosh, I don't want to give that up. The blessed person is the one who just says, well, you know, I said I, I, said I would do it, so I'm going to do it. But the temptation is to say, well, I, you know what? I had my fingers crossed behind my back when I told you that at church the other day. Jesus is teaching whole person holiness. That's why I called this holistic transformation. It's whole person holiness. This is Jesus. This is what he's always been about. This is not anything new. This is what Jesus is aiming for. He wants to transform us so that the things that come out of us, the things we say, are things that would please and honor him. Remember, Jesus made this statement. He was speaking, he was actually speaking to the, to the, the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. And he asked the question, he said, how can you being evil say these things? pious things you know you you sound so holy how can you being evil say these things because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks so Jesus knew that it was all fake it was all a facade we are not to be those people nothing false disingenuous dishonest duplicitous or manipulative should be anything that's seen in our lives. We are to be people whose simple yes or no can be trusted, period. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, I was reading one commentator who I actually really like, but I felt like he was taking this to a level that it didn't need to go to where, you know, you might even just be having a friendly conversation with somebody and in the course of them asking you something and then maybe them saying, really? And you go, yeah, I swear. Now, he, he would be a little condemning of that. I think that's maybe going a little bit far. It's what, what's really happening there. Somebody's not... It's not because they're lacking integrity necessarily. This is just kind of the way we communicate sometimes. So we don't want to get into this weird, rigid, legalistic type of a thing about it. But in the end, the point is that Jesus wants us to be people who can be trusted. People who can be taken at their word. People who don't need to say 
I swear on a stack of Bibles, cross my heart and hope to die. People who can just say yes or no. And then Jesus says this. At the end, he says, having said, all you need to say is yes or no. He said, anything beyond this comes from our translation, the evil one. The, there's, a, there's a debate among translators as to whether it's the evil one or, or whether it's, it comes of evil. And some manuscripts read uh, of the evil one. Other manuscripts just read of, of evil. Which one is it? Well, it makes sense that it would say the evil one because we know that Satan is the father of lies and deceit. He, uh, all deception originates with him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks his natural, uh, or he speaks his native language. Jesus told us that in John chapter 8. But then if, if it's not the evil one and it just comes of evil, then it's referring to the heart. And we know from Scripture, our hearts are by nature deceitful above all things. So either way, we don't need to get hung up on that. Either way, these types of things come from a place other than the Spirit. So whether it's, it's the evil in the heart or if it's the influence of the enemy, we don't want to go either place. We want that we want that influence of the Spirit. And so, Jesus is calling us. And, and let's just walk ourselves back here uh, a little bit. Jesus is calling us through each of these examples that he's using. Oaths here, divorce prior to that. Adultery before that, murder, which he said, hatred in the heart. Jesus is calling us to be formed into his image to our very core. To our very core. Surface religion, pretending, which is also known as hypocrisy, Playing religious games, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. Playing religious games will not cut it. The Lord wants our hearts. With Jesus, it's always a matter of the heart. It's always a matter of the heart. Jesus wants deep. He wants transformation that begins deep, deep within and works itself out from within. And he, of course, is able to do that for us as we yield ourselves to him. When we receive Jesus, he takes up a residence in us. He, he comes and dwells in us. And you know, when he comes to dwell within us, think of somebody, 
think of it like this. Here, here's maybe a good illustration. You, your house. Jesus is moving in. Guess what he's going to do? He's probably going to rearrange things. He's probably going to clean things up. He's probably going to toss some stuff out. That's, that's a picture. And I was, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, you know, I mean, you might, the initial response to that might be, oh, man. No, oh, Jesus, don't, don't, no, Jesus, don't do that. Don't get rid of that. Oh, don't rearrange that. Come on, Lord. That's cool the way it is. But, you know, I, I was thinking, no, Jesus knows what he's doing. I think when we, what our response will really be when we see Jesus doing what he's doing, you know what, we're going to go, wow, that, I never, I, I never thought to put it like that. Oh, that is so much better than, than the way I had it arranged. See, when Jesus comes in and starts rearranging our lives, it's good. And it's going to be good. And we're going to think it's good. And people are going to go, wow, who decorated your house? This is amazing. That's what it's like. He's, he's come into our lives to transform our lives from the inside out.